Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the book of John, chapter 5, as we read verses 39 through 47. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Hear now the word of God. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings... How will you believe my words? Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths in our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Would you carry and sustain us today? Give us attentiveness to your word, remembering that there is almost certainly nothing greater or more important that we will hear this week than what you have to say to us right now. With that in mind, give us minds to think, hearts to believe, and ears to hear. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, we saw the three witnesses that Jesus appealed to so that people would know that he is the Messiah of Israel. And you'll probably remember he pointed to John the Baptist as one of his witnesses. Then he pointed to his own miraculous works as a witness. And then he pointed to the father's testimony. And all three of them for Jesus were an argument for why you should understand that he is the Messiah. And one of the things I was at pains to point out last week is that Jesus expects that people will want evidence of who he is. And Jesus began to deliver that evidence in droves. Now keep something in mind. Evidence is important. What we believe must be true. What we believe must actually match up with reality as God has made it. But Jesus makes a statement in verse 42 that I think puts the evidence that he presents to us in perspective. And what he says in verse 42 is this. I know that you do not have the love of God within you. And why is this so important? Well, partly it's because there are many Christians with such a rationalistic view of the faith that they believe Um, that they almost seem to think that it's only a matter of proof. If only we could offer enough proof, then people would believe. Um, And particularly, this was a problem for me early on as a Christian. When I became a Christian, God used evidence to bring me to him and change my heart. 
And I made this mistake very early on because I was presented with the evidence. I saw that the evidence pointed to Jesus. I saw that Jesus was a real historical person. And for me, that realization was enough to change my world and change how I saw things. And after I came to become a Christian and actually believed that this was true, I started to share that evidence with people around me. And more and more, I was discovering the people that were important to me in my life didn't believe it, even though I was presenting them with the exact same evidence that I had. And so the way that I coped with that rejection of the gospel that I kept seeing was I decided they weren't thinking right, or maybe they weren't as smart as me. Maybe they weren't fair-minded. And what I missed was something that Jesus gives us this morning. Because he's just mentioned in the text, he just mentioned that the Pharisees refused to come to him. And then he says, I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Right after he says that they didn't believe. And see, what Jesus is doing in that place there is he's pinpointing the real source of unbelief. Now, unbelief will give lots of reasons for why it's there. It will say that, that, that there isn't enough evidence. Uh, maybe it will start throwing up excuses about other people. Well, I've seen hypocrisy in the lives of Christians. Um, unbelief will say something uh, about all this just doesn't make sense. I, I don't know what it is. Just something about it just doesn't make sense to me. Um, and maybe, maybe, maybe unbelief whispers those things to you as well. I think unbelief is always a temptation. Unbelief is something Christians have to fight hard and actively against in our lives. And maybe you to think that that may come as a discouragement to you. It may come as a discouragement to think, am I going to be tempted to unbelief all my life? One thing I think is sort of a nice counterbalance to this is something that was pointed out by the sociologist Charles Taylor. And what Charles Taylor said was, look, For Christians, unbelief is a temptation, but Christians need to put that in perspective because unbelievers are constantly tempted in the opposite direction. They're constantly tempted towards belief. They are are almost as tempted to belief as the believer is to unbelief, if that makes sense. And you can think about why this would be the case for somebody who is living a life where they say, I don't believe, I don't trust in Christ, I don't believe these things, and they have to tell themselves that it's not true. But to, to live in God's world, a world that was constructed and built as a gigantic testimony to God and who he is. Everything that the unbeliever runs into in life is luring them away from that unbelief. It is tough to live in God's world with a soul that was made by God, that was meant to be satisfied by God, and then to live as if you weren't made for God. Unbelievers see his face everywhere they go, metaphorically speaking. They see his testimony all over the place, etched on every tree, uh, written in the sky every morning when they wake up. Every breath that they draw is a testimony to God. And so if you as a Christian feel discouraged that unbelief is always a temptation for you, imagine being an unbeliever and the temptation and the work they have to put in each and every day to resist the God who made them. So we need to think well about unbelief. But at the end of the day, Jesus says unbelief can be traced back to one core reality, and that is a heart issue. That's what he says here. 
He says, I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Jesus is tracing their unbelief to that reality. You do not have the love of God within you. Unless God does a work of grace in your heart, when you are presented with the evidence, even a well-constructed, perfect argument, you're still going to be like a brick wall. And Jesus is speaking to brick walls here and explaining why they're acting like brick walls. They don't come. They refuse to come. They don't believe. They won't believe. Why? He says, I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I know that you don't, says Jesus. You see, the way that we respond to the evidence, the way we respond to the teaching of God says more about our own heart than it does about the facts that are staring us in the face. The fact that people don't believe says nothing about the facts of the matter. Uh, back in the month of February, there were some famous YouTubers. I know a lot of you are, are, are viewers of YouTube, but I all know a lot of you probably don't know what a YouTube is. It's probably a mixture. Um, but there were two very famous YouTubers who were also Christians, and in, back in the month of February, they announced to the world they are no longer Christians, and they gave their story about why they didn't believe in Jesus anymore. And a lot of people felt shaken. A lot of people felt very upset that these people, that they had been encouraged to know that they were believers in Christ, no longer were anymore. One of the things we have to to understand about unbelief is that when people refuse to believe, it says more about the unbelief, unbelievers, than it does about the facts of the matter. Um, How does that fit into my story? You know, I've already mentioned to you, I'm one of those weird, rare, strange people that just got presented with evidence and came to Jesus that way. Um, I didn't believe as a teenager. How do I interpret that? I didn't love God. I did not love God. I did not like God. I did not want God to be real. Um, and then my eyes, in the case of how the Lord worked in me, he, he caused my eyes to fall upon a book. And he caused me to ask my mother to buy me that book. And I actually read that book and I became convinced that Christianity was reasonable, that it was rational. And I kept studying and I kept going. I asked God to show me the evidence of if he was true and if he was real. And so I studied that evidence for Jesus and for the New Testament. And I went on and I pressed on until eventually I was brought by a chain of evidence to the foot of the cross. And here's what I didn't see at the time. The arguments didn't get me there. What got me there was the work of God in my heart to follow and find and go where the evidence led. You see how that's very different from just a rationalistic uh, study and coming to Jesus that way? It turns out there was a whole bunch of stuff going on in my heart underneath of the arguments that made me receptive to the arguments. So in, in my case, God used arguments to bring me to him, but God uses all sorts of secondary means. For some of you, it was painful life circumstances that he used to bring you to the faith. Um, For others of you, he used the consistent teaching of the Bible throughout your childhood to bring you to Jesus. But make no mistake, I wasn't argued into the kingdom of God. I uh, I made the same arguments to my best friends at the time, and they didn't believe. If it was arguments that worked, my friends would be believers now. People aren't emotionally manipulated by God through their pain into coming into the kingdom. How do I know that? Because there are plenty of people who endure painful circumstances and they don't come to God. 
Even children raised up in the church cannot be brainwashed to coming to God. Uh, They cannot be made to believe. There are plenty of those who were raised up in Christian homes, discipled their whole lives, made it to adulthood, and then seemingly at least abandoned the faith and left the home. And the parents still hope they'll return to Christ. Jesus is showing us that all of those things can be factors in a person's life, but at the end of the day, it is an issue of love. Do you love God or do you not love God? How you answer that question affects how you evaluate the evidence when it's presented or how you deal with pain when it comes or whether you embrace the teaching of Scripture that your parents so earnestly taught you throughout your childhood. So why does Jesus even bother then? Why does Jesus even bother then if he knows that they don't have the love of God within them? I want to mention just two quick reasons why Jesus would speak in this situation that I think most of us would write off as helpless. Um, One reason I think that Jesus does this is he knows that the love of God doesn't come from us, right? He is hopeless that these people are going to create love for God in their own hearts. The love of God that these people are missing can be given as a sovereign gift. And so Jesus has hope even in the face of unbelief. So he still gives them the reasons. He still does the work that he's to do. And second, the second reason I think Jesus does this is because Jesus knows that others are watching. There are others who are listening in on this discussion, and many of them will believe. Even though there are hard-hearted people, he also knows that there are people, even in that room, even in that place where he's at, that are hearing the word and they're going to believe because of it. And actually, that's what's happening um, um, this morning. I've had several times uh, where I ended up having a conversation with somebody, and it turns out the Lord did not intend that conversation to be for the person I was talking to. Afterwards, someone else comes up and says, you know, I was listening to that conversation, and that's really had an impact on me. And maybe you've had conversations that you thought were between you and another person. And what ended up happening was there was someone else listening in and they ended up being very edified by what they heard. And see, Jesus is doing that now. He's having a conversation that's being overheard. He's he's giving evidence. He's being met with this hostility, but he perseveres on because he has to hope that God could still use this evidence he's presenting as an instrument of change in the lives of his opponents, those who are listening in as well. And that includes us. We are those who are listening in over the conversation. We are not involved in this conversation. And yet, what are we doing right now, even today? We're being impacted, hopefully, God willing, by what's said here in the text. And by the way, I think that's why Peter tells us that we should always be ready to give a hope for the reason that lies within us, because God can use anything. He can use our feeble, clumsy arguments to change people's hearts. He tells us to give the reason for the hope that lies within us because it's not within us to change people, but it is within God to be able to change people. And we will, by the way, see that in a few weeks when we get to John chapter 6, where Jesus really elaborates on this in a rich way. So last week, Jesus brought forward these three witnesses. And now he continues that as he calls upon two more witnesses. And those two witnesses that he calls upon are the scriptures. And then finally, he calls upon a second witness, which is Moses. 
at least in principle, if you were trying to convince Jewish people in the first century that you were the Messiah, there are probably no two witnesses that would be more convincing than the scriptures themselves. And then finally, Moses. This is Jesus pulling out the big guns here as he wraps up his argument. So let me show you what I mean. See, witness number four that Jesus calls upon is the scriptures. And and he does this very plainly in verses 39 through 40. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Think about what the scriptures were, right? Uh, and what they, were meant, what they meant to Israel. So the, the scriptures were the written record of God's dealing with his people. They were the, the written law, the written covenant that he, he made with Israel. Everything that Israelites needed for life and godliness was contained in this book. They had it. The scriptures were the lifeblood of Israel. They were their lifeline to God. Without the scriptures, they would have no knowledge of God whatsoever. They wouldn't know who God was. Without the scriptures, Israel would have been adrift at sea, just guessing all the time. And what that means is, and this is still still true today, by the way, um, When Jesus points to the written word of God, he's pointing to the only real way that an Israelite would know what God had promised to do. This is the only only way that you would really know that Jesus was promised to Israel. And and this is still true for us today. Okay, without the scriptures, without the Bible, all we're doing is just guessing together what God is like. We're just crowdsourcing ideas about what we think God is. And that's dangerous because we live in a very intuitive age. We live in an age where people just sort of love to share their hot takes about everything that happens. Uh, I won't commend you to Twitter, but I will tell you that is exhibit A for everybody loves to give a hot take on anything that happens. And so if we didn't have the Bible, all we would do is guess and crowdsource our ideas together and we would all get him wrong together. And when Jesus points to the scriptures as a witness, he is not just quoting a preferred document. He is not just saying that, well, this is the most popular document. This is the one you guys love to read. He's saying something with absolute authority. This is what God himself has said in his infallible, inerrant, God-breathed word. So he is calling on an extraordinary witness here. So he, he points to the scriptures as the authority that his listeners are bound to. But what does he say about it? He makes this crucial comment. He says, it is the scriptures that bear witness about me. Now think about this. If the Bible is a painting, Jesus is its interpreter. And Mike, Mike Kruger uh, compares this to the Mona Lisa. One of the things that we know about the Mona Lisa is that scholars are constantly arguing about the Mona Lisa. Who is the woman in this painting? Um, what does this painting even mean? Um, some people have said this was not a real historical woman at all. They've said that this is actually Leonardo da Vinci, da Vinci painting a self-portrait of himself that's been gender-swapped. Uh, maybe he was trying to paint himself Um, We don't really know. 
That's the problem. Scholars can argue about this all they want. They can sort of bicker back and forth, give their reasons, give their arguments. But imagine, says Kruger, imagine if we could find Leonardo himself and ask him these questions. In that case, we wouldn't have to wonder about them anymore. We wouldn't have to guess about them anymore. There wouldn't be any more scholarly papers arguing about who this person is. Instead, if we could hear from Leonardo himself, we would know conclusively who the Mona Lisa is. That's sort of what Jesus has done here for us. He he is explaining the Mona Lisa to us. The Bible is a work of art. The Bible is our Mona Lisa in this instance. And Jesus is taking this thing and he's holding it up and he's saying, I know who this is about. It is a witness to me. This is a book that points to me. Jesus makes a similar statement somewhere else in the book of Luke, chapter 24. He's walking with the disciples. They're going to a city called Emmaus. And in that passage, Jesus takes the Bible and he opens it up and it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So do you see this very, you you and I should not read the Bible this way. You and I should not read the Bible in a self-centered way saying, how does this book point to me? We don't do that. But Jesus does exactly that with his disciples. He opens the Bible and he's able to point to places in all the scriptures. That's the way the text says it. He's able to point to places in all the scriptures that teach about him. How do we think about how the Bible does this? The the name Jesus doesn't appear in the Old Testament, at least not as a proper name. Now, the name Jesus just means Joshua, which just means salvation. Um, So his name appears, but not as a technical name referring to himself. But how does the Old Testament do that then if it doesn't use Jesus's proper name? Well, the simplest way of thinking about how the Old Testament speaks of Jesus has been sort of uh, summarized by theologians. And they use three things to group how Jesus is spoken of in the Old Testament. And if you're taking notes and you're looking at your outline and you are going to write under this first point, Uh, I would write three things. These are the three ways that Jesus is spoken of in the Old Testament. He is spoken of through prophecies. He's spoken of through types. And he's spoken of through ceremonies. So prophecies, types, and ceremonies. What are those? Well, prophecies are direct statements that are intentionally and specifically pointing to the coming Messiah. So there are Bible verses that specifically and intentionally point to Jesus. I'll give you a few examples. Isaiah chapter 7 predicts that Jesus would be born of a virgin. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 predicted that Jesus would be born in the city of Bethlehem. Zechariah 11.12 predicts that Jesus would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. That's exactly what he was betrayed for. Not 20, not 40 pieces. Not 25 pieces or 35 pieces, but exactly 30 pieces of silver. Psalm 22 predicts the crucifixion of Jesus. It predicts that nails would pierce his hands and feet. It predicted that when he was killed, even though the Roman practice was to break people's legs so that they would suffocate as they hung on the cross, they predicted that Christ's bones would not, in fact, be broken. Isaiah 53 predicted that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. 
Isaiah 53 is replete with, this, with prophecies about Jesus. It also predicted that he would be whipped, that he would be killed, that he would rise again. So, so that's prophecy. So I'm just giving you some examples here. That's prophecy, direct statements that intentionally point to Jesus. But we also see Jesus in the Old Testament through typology. Now, I don't know if you're used to talking about typology, but when we talk about the word type in theology, we are using a technical term. A type is a word for people or events or institutions that point beyond themselves to something greater than themselves. And in the case of the Old Testament, we're talking about Jesus. So let me give you some examples of types in the Old Testament so you know what I'm talking about. I don't want this to just be ideas. I want this to be tangible to you. Think of King David. In the Old Testament, King David was a faithful king, and he also led his people into worship. This is, this is what Jesus is. Jesus is our king that leads us into worship. Um, you see a type of Christ when you look at Moses, right? Moses was a prophet. He spoke truthfully to God's people. He led them out of bondage. He led them out of the wilderness in spite of their weakness and sin. That sounds like the way Jesus deals with me. And it's supposed to. We see Jesus pictured as a type when we look at the tabernacle in the Old Testament. When we look at the temple in the Old Testament, what do the temple and the tabernacle communicate to us? God is present with us. And that's exactly what we have with Jesus. We have God with us when we look at Christ. Romans chapter 5 verse 14 actually uses the word type. And he says that Adam was a type of Christ. And so when we look at Adam, we see somebody who was tempted and yet failed. When we look at Adam, we see somebody who uh, was given a command by God and didn't keep that command. And in that sense, what happens? Jesus is the one who was given the command and he did keep it. Jesus is the one who was given a task and he did complete it. You see how Jesus is pointed to even when we're reading the Old Testament and we're looking at these people. So that's typology. Typology is very rich, by the way. I have a book in my office called Typology of Scripture and it's so full And it's so good. And so many times we see things in the Old Testament and we don't even realize we're looking at Christ being spoken of. We also see Christ in the ceremonies of Scripture. And by the way, this third point bleeds into our next one, which is Moses. So remember that we're talking about Moses here when we look at these. But we see Jesus in the ceremonies of Scripture because the ceremonies were the religious practices of the Jews that were given to them in the law of Moses. And so this included things like the law of blood in Leviticus. In Leviticus, we learn that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. This drives us to Jesus, whose blood had to be shed for us. Um, We see this in things like the Day of Atonement, where the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and make a sacrifice for the people's sins. We see Christ in the ceremonies of the law about the sacrifices. Sacrifices were to be perfect. They were to be spotless. They were supposed to be without a flaw. That makes us yearn for Jesus because Jesus was sinless. Just like the lamb that was spotless. These are just three categories of ways that Jesus is pointed to in the Old Testament. 
but I think they at least give you a rough idea of the variety of ways that Jesus is talking about himself so that when we read the Old Testament, we see that Jesus is peppered throughout from beginning to the very end. Whether it's the book of Malachi speaking of Jesus coming or whether it's Genesis with the serpent having his head crushed. Whatever it is, we see Jesus all over the Bible. And that is what Jesus said. Jesus is convinced that he is all over this book from top to bottom. And so on the one hand, we have this profound commitment to the content of this witness. He is sure of one thing. He is all over the Bible if they will just look. But consider this. And I just mentioned this in passing. He's also speaking to the profound reliability of this witness. Right? He's at once calling on the witness. And by calling on the witness, he's telling us we can trust this witness. He's saying, you can trust this book. I'm going to call upon this as a trustworthy witness. Alongside of the Father, he calls upon the Bible. You see, not only... Do the scriptures testify to Jesus, but Jesus testifies to the scriptures here. One of the best reasons, I'm not the only reason, but one of the best reasons we should trust the Bible is because Jesus trusted the Bible. Jesus trusted the Bible. He staked his whole ministry on the truthfulness of this book. Jesus is willing to stake everything on this belief he has, that the Bible is the word of God and says everything that he wants his people to know. And so what he's done here is he's called upon the fourth witness, and the fourth witness is the scriptures. Now, witness number five is Moses himself. Often when you have court proceedings, uh, the attorney will very often bring the star witness last, the one who's the capstone, the one who brings everything that's been said previously together. Now, James Montgomery Boyce says it this way, and I, I just love how he says it, so I just stole it from him. He says, suppose a man is on trial for murder and the evidence for his conviction is being presented by the district attorney. The first witness comes forward and demonstrates that the accused had an opportunity to commit the crime. The second witness shows that he had a motive for committing the crime. The third witness proves that the accused had access to the murder weapon. Finally, the fourth witness was an eyewitness of the murder itself and can identify the murderer. And so what Jesus does here when he calls upon Moses is he calls upon his star witness. For Jewish people, Moses really would have been the star of the show here. Think about this. For the Jewish people, that would have been the case. His name is mentioned in the Old Testament over 700 times. In the New Testament, his name is mentioned almost 100 times. There is no figure who hangs over the life and history of Israel in a larger-than-life way than Moses does. And yet Jesus calls on him as his final witness in the passage. What does he say? He says, if you believed Moses You would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Later on in Luke, Jesus says, Everything written about me in the law of of Moses and the prophets and Psalms must be fulfilled. So we don't have the, the time or the space to open all of this up, but Jesus seems to know where their hope is. Here's the interesting thing. Their hope is not... 
in the one Moses spoke of. Their hope is in Moses himself. They are treating Moses like an end in himself. And Jesus says, Moses is the one on whom you've set your hope. That's wrong. That's wrong. We saw already how the ceremonies, the types, the prophecies of Moses point to Jesus. But please notice what Jesus demands and what he says Moses demands. He says, do not set your hope on Moses. He says, if you set your hope on Moses without looking to the one that Moses hoped in, you will stand accused by God. And that's what Jesus says. He says, he says, if you hope in Moses, Moses will accuse you. Why? Because that's not what he ever wanted or taught. The whole point of Moses' life and ministry was to send people running into the arms of the prophet who was greater than himself. Moses would not want you to turn to him and find your confidence in him. Now you may think to yourself, I'm not a big Moses fan. This is not a problem for me. I'm not one of his groupies. You know, that's not me. I think the Ten Commandments are great, but I have to be honest, the law of God has never been the thing that excited me the most. Here's how this translates to you and me today. And it's quite simply this. If you are setting your hope on your good works, if you feel confident because of your own goodness, uh, if you're setting your hope on what you can do, then you are putting your hope in Moses, whether you know it or not. Let me tell you this. The world is filled with people uh, even outside the church, who think that they've been good enough. They, they live with good intentions. They uh, haven't committed the worst sins they can think of. Um, they don't litter. Uh, they're better people than their neighbor. And so they think they're safe. They may never have ever heard of Moses. But I tell you what, these people are putting their hope in Moses. Moses cannot save you. Your works do not secure you. Those ceremonies, whatever they might be, they won't rescue you. Only the one that those laws and ceremonies and types and prophecies pointed to can save you. What would Moses do? Moses would say, hope in Jesus, not in me, not in your works, And certainly not in anything in yourself. Moses would say this. Your only hope is Jesus Christ alone. That's what Moses would say. Let's pray. Lord, we know that these scriptures do drive us directly to your son. That they not only send us to your son, but they violently push us away from putting our hope in anyone or anything else. Protect us from idols. Protect us from loving and hoping in anything other than Jesus Christ alone. In whose name we pray. Amen. Would you please respond to God this morning by singing the first two verses of number 648. My Jesus, I love thee. Would you please stand together?